Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you all today. Um, we were visiting my brother in California and had a good time, um, but very much missed being here and missed you all, and it's good to be back and uh, very thankful for you. Um, it's good to see familiar faces again, even though it's only been a couple of weeks. Uh, just fun to come in this morning and then throughout the week this week and catch up with folks and see you and find out what's going on. Uh, so we're very thankful for the church body here and uh, just thankful to be here um, this morning as well. Um, I'm glad you're here to celebrate Palm Sunday with us. Um, it's a day, uh, as, as we've already mentioned, but it's a day that launches us into Easter week, right? I mean, this is the beginning of the week of Easter. We'll culminate next Sunday with a celebration um, commemorating and remembering the Lord's resurrection. There are a lot of important days in Christianity that we set aside to celebrate. Obviously, Christ, uh, Christmas is one of those significant days, but none is more important to our faith, to our lives, to our hope of eternal life than Easter. Um, and I want you to hear this morning what G.K. Chesterton, who's an author, a very, very insightful, helpful author, I want you to hear what he had to say about Easter and about how Easter sets apart Christianity from every other religion in the world. Here's what he says. And one fact which sticks out like a spike as huge as the Matterhorn is the fact that the Christianity which created Christendom did definitely declare that its religious founder, unlike the other religious founders, had risen materially from the dead. Nobody ever said that Confucius rose from the dead, and nobody would have been more legitimately annoyed at the notion than Confucius. Buddha may have believed that men returned in other forms by way of reincarnation, but he distinctly discouraged them from doing even that if they could help it. Muhammad may have been caught up to heaven, but he never returned to earth. The paradox of Christendom remains unique in that it does promise a new fullness of life, but only by an actual reversal of the fact of death. It begins with a material miracle and ends with a new hope of material order and security. It believes that life can be reconstituted because death has been defeated. And it's this week, beginning now, that I want you to turn your minds and turn your hearts toward this material miracle. And what he means by that material miracle is something that actually happened in physical time and space. This is not a myth. This is not a made-up story. This is something that took place. Real flesh and blood came back to life after being dead in the grave. That happened. And when that happened, death was defeated once and for all. Everything changed in that moment. Now, we traditionally mark the beginning of our Easter celebration on Palm Sunday, one week early. Why begin here? Why start here? Why not start later in the week? Why begin on Palm Sunday? Why do we sort of set this aside as almost like a, a minor holiday pointing to a major holiday 
sort of inaugurates Easter week. Well, the reason for that is because on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a humble king seated on a donkey, and he set in motion by doing that a whole series of events that will take place during the coming week that obviously culminate in his death on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday morning. So this morning, I want to use our time to prepare you for this week. That's, that's my goal with this study this morning. I want to prep you to turn your attention toward the coming week and think about and ponder the resurrection and the implications of that. And we're going to start here in Luke chapter 19. We're going to start here with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And here's what we're going to see this morning in this text of Scripture. Three ways the triumphal entry sets the stage for Easter week. Three ways the triumphal entry sets the stage or prepares us for Easter week week. The first one of these is found in verse 28 that Danny read this morning. The triumphal entry is the completion of a purposeful journey. I mentioned when I first got up here that our family just got back uh, on Wednesday from a week of vacation in Southern California with my brother. We'd never taken all the kids out there before. Gray has never been out there. The last time we went with our three kids at that point was 2013. We lived out there for four years, so we had not been out, had not seen some friends uh, that we were very close to for a long time, so we had the opportunity to go over spring break, so we took our family out there. Now, one does not undertake a trip like that haphazardly. You do not sort of stumble into getting four kids to Southern California on an airplane by the seat of your pants. It takes a certain amount of effort and planning to reach your objectives. And our objectives were, at a minimum, of arriving with all four of our children, (laughs) not losing any of them in the terminal, with enough socks to get through the week, and with six toothbrushes. And we reached all of those objectives. It was a good time. But here, as you find Jesus coming into Jerusalem, this is the culmination of a journey. And it is, it's not something he's sort of stumbling into. He doesn't just happen to have made his way to Jerusalem. Look at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, this is important in the whole flow of the book of Luke. We've not been studying Luke, but I want to take you back to the very... Uh, key turning point in the book of Luke in chapter 9. I want you to flip back in your Bible to chapter 9, and I want to show you something. The whole book hinges on this passage at the end of chapter 9. Everything turns here, and everything flows from what we're about to read in verse 51. Look at this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, So there's a a purpose, there's a goal. Jesus understands that his time on earth is drawing to a close. And so what does he do? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now you may not have realized this before as you're reading through Luke, but everything from this, this point on till we get to the triumphal entry is on a journey. Everything in chapters 10 through 19 happens on this journey to Jerusalem. All of the teaching, all of the miracles, everything that happens in those chapters fits together and points to 
his going to Jerusalem in order to die on the cross. Jesus teaches and instructs his disciples in these chapters on the nature of salvation, on what true discipleship looks like, and he does all of that so that he can prepare them for what is about to happen. Everything is intentional. It's not haphazard. And what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem? Well, he knows he's going to be taken up. But before he's taken up, he will die a brutal death on the cross. It will be incredibly difficult for his disciples. And then three days later, he will rise again. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. There's a purpose to this journey. Now, when you think about that journey and the purpose of that journey culminating in his death and resurrection, that pattern that he sets of going to the cross and dying in order to rise again, that pattern has massive implications for his followers. In fact, right after he sets his face to go to Jerusalem in Luke 9, I want you to look at the next passage beginning in verse 57 and look at how this has an implication for those who would follow Jesus. Your life must take up the same pattern of dying to self as you follow him in order to receive true life. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, as if it's easy. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem to take up his cross and to follow him. He calls each of his followers to do the same thing, to take up their cross and follow him, to die to self. What that means is it's no longer about you and I. We are not the center of the universe in our lives anymore. It's about him. It's about his purposes. It's about his plans. And the shape of his life, his journey to the cross, will form our lives as well. As we will continually die to self as we follow him. As we will continually submit ourselves to his lordship. And as you this week begin to think about the resurrection and you ponder that and you rejoice in his victory over sin and over death and the life that that brings to us, understand what the pattern of his journey means. Life comes after death and after the cross. And it's the same for you and I as well. And so to be a follower of Christ means to turn from your sin and turn to him, to die to self and your own desires and your own plans and come to him and to, hum to humbly acknowledge your need for him as your Savior and as your Lord. Listen to Romans 6, what this says about this pattern. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And the newness of life doesn't happen except through his death and our death along with him, just like Jesus. And that prepares us for our second way that the triumphal entry preps us to anticipate Easter week. And this is in verses 29 to 38. It's the revelation of the promised king, the Lord who we do follow and we do obey. It's the revelation of who he actually is. So it's the completion of a purposeful journey that will culminate in his death. And at the same time, it's the presentation of him as the promised king, the king who will die. As Jesus gets close to Jerusalem in the completion of his journey, We're going to see in this passage, and even later, if you continue to read the book of Luke, almost every action and every word and every circumstance highlights his kingly authority. As he goes to die, he is not absent of his power and authority. He is in complete control of the situation. And in fact, his power and authority are put on display. Look at verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage, and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. Now, I want to stop there and just highlight where he has arrived to and some of the significance of this for his position and his identity as the king. He's arrived to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a massively significant place regarding Old Testament messianic expectations. So it's not accidental that he ends up here. In Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple because the people have been worshiping idols. They have been sinful beyond belief. And so the glory of the Lord departs the temple and they're going to be exiled. And before it fully departs the nation of Israel, it comes to rest on the Mount of Olives. And that's the last place the glory of the Lord resides before fully leaving the nation of Israel. In Zechariah 14, looking ahead to the future, the expectation is that the Lord will return in the future, if not here, at some point in the future, to the Mount of Olives. And I think this is an anticipation of that. Zechariah 14, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day... His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So the one half of the Mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And so this had significant uh, meaning for Israel as they thought about their future and as they thought about messianic expectations. And Jesus arrives at this place, not by accident, and as he does, look at the end of verse 29, he sends two of his disciples on a mission. When he arrived near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, verse 30, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, or a donkey tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Now, Jesus obviously is looking ahead to the future, knowing what's going to happen, anticipating what's going to happen, being fully aware of it, and commanding the circumstances and the situation. 
He commands them to go in and find a colt or a donkey on which no one has ever sat. Now, that's very interesting language, and it's similar language to what's going to happen later in the book of Luke when Jesus is placed in a tomb. Do you remember this in your reading of the Gospels? What does it say about the tomb in which he will be placed? Luke 23 and verse 53. It says this, Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Very similar language there. And in the Old Testament, this sort of language regarding a, a colt or the king's horse or the king's donkey uh, was, or it was regarding a king, their donkey or horse could, was one that had never been ridden or could never be ridden by someone else. It was reserved specifically for the king. And so there's significance here, both in the triumphal entry and then later as he's laid in a tomb. This is reserved for the king. And Jesus prepares his two disciples and sends them and tells them exactly what's going to happen. Look at verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Notice the answer that he tells them to say, the Lord, the master, the owner. At this point, this word, Lord, in Luke is used a number of different ways. Talk about the owner of a vineyard. But later on in scripture, as you get into the epistles, it's pretty much reserved to speak of Jesus and his authority and his divine lordship. And so he's the master and the owner, and he has need of this. And amazingly enough, as the, as the disciples go, they find exactly what Jesus tells them they will find. Look at verses 32 to 34. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? A reasonable question. And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, this is not the only time in the Passion Week, the week of his death and resurrection, that this sort of thing happens. Not the only time at all. I want you to flip ahead to Luke 22. I'm going to show you a very clear example of this. The same sort of thing happens again, where Jesus has knowledge of what's going to happen in the future and commands his disciples regarding future events. Look at verse 7 of Luke 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Just a few verses later in Luke 22, Jesus prophesies about Judas's betrayal. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And then later, he prophesies about Peter's denial, and he predicts exactly what's going to happen with Peter. Now, all of these events happen leading up to his death, and all of them show us that Jesus is in complete control of what's happening. 
He has full knowledge of what needed to happen and what was going to happen to him during this week. He does not get caught up in a religious or political debate and come out on the wrong end of the circumstances. That's not what happens here. He doesn't die on the cross because the powers that be are just too overwhelming. He's not a pawn in this situation and in these circumstances. He's in complete control. He knows exactly what's going to happen, and he's orchestrating it all through his sovereignty. This is how the disciples understood it. Look at Acts. I'll, flip, I'll show it on the screen. Look at the way Peter describes this in his peer preaching after the resurrection. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He is in control. The whole thing is moving along according to God's sovereign will. And this plan is fulfilling Old Testament expectations. Everything is coming together in Jesus. Look back in Luke 19, verse 35. The disciples go, they get the colt, the Lord has need of it, in verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Hear him being set on the colt and then listen to Zechariah chapter 9, which I didn't put on there, unfortunately. So I'm going to have to turn back to Zechariah 9 and read this. Let me see if I can find it. Here we go. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the warhorse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is expected for him to arrive this way. And notice what happens as he approaches. Notice what the people do in verse 36. And as he rode along, verse 36, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is not accidental. It's not a side detail. It doesn't matter. What they're doing here is acknowledging the enthronement of a king. There's Old Testament precedent for this. 2 Kings 9, and I just couldn't seem to get the verses to copy on there this week. I am very sorry about this. I do not know what's going on. It's either me or my computer. I'm going to go with me. 2 Kings 9, verses 12 and 13. I've got it. This is talking about Jehu. Verse 13 in particular, as they anoint him king. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. 
So this is very clearly presenting Jesus as the enthroned king, the sovereign king here. And you can maybe picture this. I'm sure you've seen children's Bibles illustrating this or, or other illustrations of this or seen movies that depict this, but I'm sure you can have some image of what's happening in your mind. And the excitement is building here as he approaches Jerusalem and as the disciples are cheering and chanting these words that we're going to read here in a couple of minutes and as they're putting down their garments in front of him and the palm branches, which the other gospel writers mention as he approaches Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. They're presenting him as the king who is about to be enthroned. This turns into a moment of praise to God. Look at verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And so they're motivated by the miracles they've seen, by the mighty works that Jesus has done to praise God for this. Now what's Interesting here is I think even though they're his disciples, and and Luke is clear to point that out, these are the disciples of Jesus, not just a random crowd from Jerusalem. The disciples of Jesus have seen his mighty works, and so they are following him to some extent, but my suspicion here is they still fully expect some sort of political deliverance. They expect him to ride into Jerusalem and to deliver them from the oppression of Rome and to free the people of Israel and for them to get their land back. And so because of that, they naturally use words that speak of him as the king. Look at verse 38. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, it's very important that we understand what it is that they're saying and where it comes from here. The first phrase that they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is taken from Psalm 118. The second is kind of a combination of Psalm 148. And then you may remember those words that the angels said back at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. But I want to focus on that first phrase that's taken from Psalm 118. And apparently, it was a good thing that I didn't try to put this on the screen. I actually want you to turn back to Psalm 118 this morning. Because we're going to spend a few minutes here to try to help us understand what's going on and what the significance of this phrase is regarding Jesus. So all the way back to Psalm 118. Now, there's several things you need to understand about this psalm, okay? First of all, Look at the first verse of this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. What's interesting about that first verse is it's the same first verse that is used in Psalm 106 and Psalm 107. Obviously, those two psalms are coming before this one in the Psalter. And so this psalm is linking itself back to those two psalms and seeing this psalm as the fulfillment or the explanation of what is expected in those two psalms. Well, what is expected in Psalm 106 and 107? Those two psalms specifically look forward to Israel's return from exile. So they're back in the land under God's authority 
and those two psalms anticipate a new exodus, just like the old exodus, the salvation that God brought, but they anticipate this new exodus where God is once again dwelling with his people, except it's bigger and it's better in some way. And so because this is linked to those two psalms, this psalm is saying how all of that will happen, how it will be brought about. And that's the question you want to ask as you read this psalm. How does that happen? How does God return to dwell with his people and bring about a new exodus? Well, Psalm 118 focuses on some individual. And as you begin to read this psalm, you find this individual is in distress and he's surrounded by his enemies. But you also find that as he's surrounded by his enemies, he looks to the Lord for help. And I want to go down to verse 14 of Psalm 118. Notice what this individual says. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now, that's not a random thing for this individual to say. That verse is taken from Exodus 15. Now, what's in Exodus 15? You don't need to flip back there. But Exodus 15 is the song of deliverance that Israel sings after they come through the Red Sea. And so what this individual is saying is he's picking up that song of deliverance in the first Exodus and saying that through me, I anticipate that God will do the same thing. He will bring salvation. There will be a new Exodus that will come. It's going to come through him. And what's interesting is then in verse 15, so if you're thinking in terms of the exodus and God's salvation through the Red Sea, look at verse 15. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. When did Israel dwell in tents? In the wilderness, after they came through the Red Sea. And so it's it's the same sort of situation. And it's like this individual is experiencing God's salvation just like happened through the Red Sea. And it's like this individual is leading his people through the wilderness and toward God's promised land. Again. And then if you look in verse 15 and verse 16, he talks about the right hand of the Lord. The very first time that phrase is used in the Bible is in Exodus 15, where God delivers Israel and brings salvation by his powerful right hand. And so this individual in the future brings salvation through God's powerful right hand, similar to the way he delivers Israel, but to a greater extent. Now, after leading the people through the Red Sea by God's right hand, this individual through the wilderness in their tents approaches Jerusalem. Look at verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. It's like he's leading the people to God's presence and to Jerusalem and he's asking to be let in. Verse 20, he's going to bring the righteous with him. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. They enter through him into God's presence. And then in verse 22, we actually find out a little bit more about this individual. And you may recognize some of this language. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so this individual, there's some sort of rejection that he will experience, some sort of persecution that he will experience, and through that, he will become the cornerstone of God's new temple. And he will be the one that will usher people into God's presence. In the book of Isaiah, we read about a cornerstone, that the cornerstone is a king from the line of David who will deliver his people. And when he arrives, this future Davidic king, this cornerstone who is rejected, when he arrives, look at verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. When he approaches Jerusalem to bring his people into God's presence. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It is a day to rejoice in. And then lo and behold, look at verse 26. Here's our phrase that the people said as Jesus approaches Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, I think all the way back in Luke 19, that the people are speaking better than they know. I think that's what's going on. They identify him with this individual from Psalm 118. They're expecting salvation and deliverance, but they don't fully understand his rejection. I think verse 22, the cornerstone language, they don't fully get that. But what's amazing is that this psalm is picked up again in the New Testament many times after Jesus' resurrection. And it's like the disciples can finally put the whole thing together. And they see him coming and bringing salvation and ushering his people into God's presence. And they finally realize that the way he does that is through his his being rejected as as the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected who has become the chief cornerstone. Listen to Peter's preaching in Acts 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so they fully and finally, after the resurrection, the disciples recognize exactly who he is, and they're able to put all of this together. And that, putting it all together and seeing who Jesus is, should certainly lead us to worship this Easter as well. And that's exactly what has happened here, even though these disciples don't fully understand what's going on, but they do worship the Lord, and that should provoke us to worship as well. And this is the last way that the triumphal entry prepares us. It sets our hearts toward the proper worship of God. Now, of course, they're excited, but not everyone is excited. There's a group of grumpy people who are coming onto the scene. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They hear what's going on, right? They know their Old Testament. They know Psalm 118. They understand at least some of the implications of this. They see how the people have changed the wording. Instead of saying he, they now speak of Jesus as the king. So they understand the implications of what they're saying And they're appalled by that. Of course, they don't think of Jesus this way at all. 
They understand the messianic implications and they reject them outright. Look how Jesus responds in verse 40. I love this. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, I know you've heard that verse before, like me, but there's actually one other place in Scripture where we find stones crying out. I don't know if you know where this is. It's in Habakkuk chapter 2. So spend a minute here and find Habakkuk. And I want you to turn over there because this is awesome what Jesus does here, specifically referring to, it's right after Nahum, if that helps at all, if not, ignore it. Habakkuk chapter two, it's the only other place in scripture where we find rocks crying out. All right, let me explain what's going on in Habakkuk two. In this section, God is warning the Chaldeans, right? This empire who is ruthless in the the Old Testament world. And the Chaldeans are coming in to destroy Israel, and they're doing this because God has enabled them to in order to bring judgment on Israel, right? That's the situation here. But the whole point of the book of Habakkuk is, look, yes, God's going to use the Chaldeans to bring judgment on Israel, but they are not going to get off the hook. He will ultimately judge them as well for their injustice and for their wickedness. Look at verses 6 through 10 as God describes this judgment because of their wickedness. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, this is Habakkuk 2, verse 6, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? He's speaking to the Chaldeans here. Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. And so it's judgment on the Chaldeans for the wickedness that they have brought. Then look at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Why? Fascinating. Why are the stones crying out from the wall here? What's going on? The stones are witnesses to the injustice of what the Chaldeans have done. They've been in the house watching as they murdered people as they plundered cities, and they cry out because it's that bad. It's that much of an injustice, and no one else is crying out. No one else is responding. So now go back to Luke 19 and think about this for a second. What is Jesus doing here? Well, first of all, two things. First of all, he's comparing the Pharisees to the Chaldeans which is just beautiful. 
It's not a group you want to be compared to if you're Jewish religious leaders. He's comparing them to the Chaldeans in their wickedness. But second, in that comparison, he's calling their attempt to restrict the worship of God and the recognition of him as the king. He's calling that a massive injustice. An injustice to the point that the stones will start to cry out if he is not properly recognized. He's saying that if human voices don't worship him, then creation will. Because if God is not properly worshipped, it is a grave injustice. It is the worst thing imaginable. There are two things that this means for you and I as we think about this. First of all, Jesus is affirming that his life and work are the fulfillment of Psalm 118. He's not saying, yeah, you're right. My people should be quiet. He's saying, absolutely. This is the, the right and the just thing for them to do. They are right to proclaim me as king. It's as it should be. And second, what he's doing here is he's saying the proper worship and adoration of God is a matter of justice and righteousness. It's the the right and fair order of the universe for God to be exalted and worshipped, for him to receive all glory and honor and praise, and for Jesus to receive that right along with the Father. It's right for Jesus to be recognized as king. Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, and this is the name that is exalted. It's not Jesus. The name is Lord. That's the name he's given and he's, is ascribed to him. The king, the sovereign ruler of the universe to the glory of God the Father. This is everything being set in its proper place for Jesus Christ to be worshipped along with the Father. So let's put all this together here. Let's put what we saw earlier regarding Jesus' journey to the cross with this response of Jesus to the Pharisees' injustice. Jesus calls his followers to deny themselves and come after him. To journey with him through death to receive new life. And here he says it's a universal injustice for God to not be worshipped and for Jesus to not be recognized as the king. And so what this means for you and I is that it is good, it is fair, it is just, it is sensible It is the best, most fitting use of the life that you have been given and that I have been given to do this, to take up our cross and follow him and to use our lives to worship him and exalt him as he deserves. It's right and fair to use the breath that he gives you to use it to turn back around and give him praise for everything. He's the king, and he deserves it. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this passage. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for the beautiful picture of you as the exalted king. 
And we anticipate this week of, of pondering how the king of the universe gave himself to die for us and then conquered death completely and carries us along in that journey and in that process so that we can die to self, so that we can die to sin and the grip that it has on our hearts and lives and we can be raised to new life spiritually and physically in the future. And we can spend eternity with you, worshiping you as you rightly deserve. We thank you for the time together this morning. Help us to carefully and specifically apply this to our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.